Hi, my name is Fritzi Horstman, and welcome to Compassion in Action. My guest today is Dr. Gabor Mate. And this conversation is, I'd, I'd say this is the quintessential Gabor Mate conversation. He touched on all of his major points, authenticity versus attachment, addiction, um, finding our essential self. It was one of the most um, riveting, fantastic conversations I've had with him, but also in my life. And I hope of, if you listen to any of my conversations, listen to this one. This one is, is just jam-packed with insight and questions with incarcerated men who's, who sent me letters with their questions. And it's just such a gift to be in his presence and to talk to, with, to Dr. Mate. And I hope you enjoy this, this interview as much as I did. Here's a short bio of Dr. Gabor Mate. After 20 years of family practice and palliative care experience, Dr. Mate worked for over a decade in Vancouver's downtown east side with patients challenged by drug addiction and mental illness. The best-selling author of four books published in over 30 languages, Gabor is an internationally renowned speaker, highly sought after for his expertise on addiction, trauma, childhood development, and the relationship of stress and illness. His books include the, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, Co Close Encounters with Addiction, When the Body Says No, The Cost of Hidden Stress, Scattered Minds, The Origins and Healing of Attention Deficit Disorder, and Hold On to Your Kids, Why Parents Need to Matter More Than Peers. His next book, The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture is due out in September 13th, 2022. Gabber is also a co-developer of a therapeutic approach, Compassionate Inquiry, now studied by hundreds of therapists, physicians, counselors, and others internationally. Dr. Gabor Mate, welcome to Compassion in Action. Hi, Fritzi. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you. Okay, we're recording. Okay. Um, is there anything you want to talk about or anything I should uh, bring up? Well, just tell me what, what this is about. No, I, this is my idea or your idea? It's my idea. Um, mostly well, about childhood trauma. Um, yeah, yeah. Just no, whatever you want. All right, let's, we'll just go. Okay. But, but let me show you my new baby. <gasps> oh, wow. Yeah. So this is a galley copy. The book is published in September, but it's done. It's done. 10 years. Yeah. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. You know, I'll read it the second, the second I can get my hands on it. So yeah, it'll be out in September. Oh my God. I, yeah. I smell bestseller. Well, from your mouth to God's ears, <laughs> as they say. I think he's listening, though. I think he's listening. Oh, good. Yeah. Or she. Yeah, or us. We're all listening. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We need to hear your voice. We need to hear what, you know, your wisdom. That's, that's the thing about Gabor Mate is it's wisdom almost at every corner, every time you speak. Except at home. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, uh, how's, how have you been? Uh, really, really wonderful. Been we just got okay. back from another visit at prison, and oh yeah, I had one of the best days of my life working with them. And really, wow. yeah, it's where, where was that? It was at Valley State Prison uh, near Fresno in California. Okay. And what made it so wonderful for you? I think because we were all in the flow and. One of the guys would come up with an idea of a problem and then we'd figure it out in mm -hmm. real time. And uh, just their vulnerability and their eagerness to learn and, and oh. look at their trauma. Yeah. Yeah, and actually I have some questions from uh, some, of the, some of the men. Of course. Um, so let's start, we'll start there and then we'll move on to child, because April is Child Abuse Awareness Month. Okay. And so I think we should we should definitely discuss uh, the devastating effects of childhood trauma. But and, and, by, and by the way, so many people tell me that one of the most powerful scenes in that film is you in the prison. You know, I mean, it, it, it really grabs people that scene. Thank you. Well, yeah. I I mean, I think what those guys did is they showed up for us. They showed us what vulnerability really looks like. 
Yeah, 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 they did. And I think that's one of the things we're so afraid of showing in society. We don't. Yeah, yeah. that's right. We, we don't take that time or we don't do that work. Yeah. And I think that's what prison people in prison have to offer us if we give them if we give them a chance. That's right. Uh, so Jesse writes to you. He says, "Greetings, Dr. Mate. My name is Jesse. Thank you for this opportunity. I would like to thank you for writing your book when the body says no." Hmm. At 12 years, I joined a gang, became addicted to alcohol and drugs, and went to juvenile detention centers. And at 19 years old, was sent to prison, where I had been for the past 24 years. My A score is 10 out of 10. Why is it that some of us that experience all 10 aces end up joining a gang, becoming addicts and ending in prison, yet others that also experienced 10 aces didn't? I ask because I have family members that have ACE score of 10 as well. They did not end up in gangs, addicts or prisons. Why me and not them? Thanking you ahead for your time and insights. Sure. So there, that's a really great question. Um, there are, two major answers to it one of them is that trauma is not what happens to us it's what happens inside of us as a result of what happens to us so two people can have the same external experience but have different responses to it now that partly depends on sensitivity the more sensitive you're born sensitive is from the latin word sensier to feel so the more sensitive you are the more you feel so when bad things happen, if you're very sensitive, you're going to be hurting that much more. And you'll have that much more to need to escape from the pain into addictions and violence and all kinds of other behaviors. So think of it, like if I tap my shoulder right now, it doesn't hurt at all. But if there was a wound there and my shoulder was bare and I was tapping on the wound, it'd be excruciatingly painful, even though externally it looks the same. So partly depends on sensitivity. And I'm telling you, some of the people in prison are some of the most sensitive people in the world in the sense that they feel more. Therefore, they hurt more. And the more they hurt, the more they need to escape from the pain. So that's one answer, is the degree of sensitivity. The other is, um, terrible things may happen to a person, but if there's even one individual around that can somehow hold them or connect with them or validate them or just speak nicely to them or accept them, the wound will not be as deep. So it's a question of A, how sensitive you are. And secondly, was there even one person around? Just one. Or maybe he couldn't even rescue you or change your situation, but at least see you and hear you and somehow give you a little bit of love. Then the impact of those same experiences will not be so devastating. So Jesse, I'm, I'm guessing, number one, that you're one of these very sensitive people. You feel a lot, number one. You probably did not have that one person in your life at the right time. What is it about having that one person that is so important to the development of, a, of our brains as a child? Well, e even as adults, think about what it's like to be understood or not understood. Or, or, or not understood. When you wanted to communicate something and the other person just doesn't get it, just how frustrating that is. This is for adults. Now for children, <clears throat> being understood and seen is actually as much of a need as food and shelter. So for healthy human development and for healthy human, healthy human brain development, you need that mirroring, that, 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 that receptivity, that attunement, that sense of being understood and, 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 and received. And if you don't have that, that really hurts. And it makes you shut down into yourself. Well, and especially with the gangs, you know, um, people need to connect to somebody because we have this deep need to connect. If there are no nurturing adults with whom to connect, then we're going to connect with the peer group. But the peer group is very often a lot of troubled kids who are leading each other in the wrong direction. Yeah, it's the Lord of the Flies. It's a lot of flies, except, you know, um, <clears throat> it, there was a real Lord of the Flies. I don't know if you know this. Lord of the Flies is this novel and a movie in which these British kids are stranded on this island and they're supposed to revert to their animalistic human nature and they turn on each other. But there was a real Lord of the Flies story in the Philippines and in Indonesia where the two of kids was shipwrecked on their own 
And you know what? They took care of each other. Fauci took care of each other. So the Lord of the Flies is not in our nature. It's in our culture. So, so what does that mean? Because that's we're we're dealing with gangs. So the gangs are created by our culture, not by the the wanton children. Or, no. well, gangs. Um, <clears throat> so that was that was what I was saying before. Human beings, especially immature human beings, have a deep need to connect. Because without that connection, the baby doesn't live. But there's nothing in the human brain that tells you who to connect to. The human brain doesn't say, I have to connect to mom and dad. There's a good reason for that. What happens to a duckling when the duckling hatches from the egg? And he looks around and sees the mother duck. You know, we call that imprinting. And basically, when the duckling looks around and sees the mother duck, his brain says, ah, this is my nurturer, my protector, my model, my mentor. I'm going to follow her and learn to be a duck. Okay, but what do we know about what happens to the duckling if the mother duck is not there when he hatches from the egg? Who will he even print on? Do you know what the answer is? Anybody. Anybody, anything. Could be a, a dog, a, a cat, or a mechanical moving toy. None of which are designed by nature to bring up the duckling to adulthood. Now, why doesn't nature say to the duckling or to the human child, you have to connect to mom and dad? Because mom and dad may die or they may not be around. And, and then what happens to the infant? So, so this connection, this imprinting, this attachment has to be transferable. So here's the thing. There's the young duckling. Mother duck is not there. He'll connect with a toy, a moving toy, and start following it around. Children are the same. There's nothing in the child's brain that says, I have to, come to connect to mom and dad. That's not up to nature. That's up to culture. And a healthy culture will provide healthy attachments, healthy nurturing adults. But what happens in a culture that doesn't provide that? The child still doesn't need to connect, but there's no healthy adults to connect to. The child has to connect to somebody that connect to the peer group. Even though the peer group is not designed by nature to bring up that little child to adulthood. So now kids are forming attachments to other immature creatures, to other troubled immature creatures. And... Uh, there's in a, in a gang, there's a sense of belonging that we all need. There's a sense of protection that we all need. There's a sense of meaning and purpose that we all need. There is a sense of um, shared secrets so that we're important. The gang provides all that, all in the wrong direction. But it's because the healthy, nurturing adult attachments were missing from the child's life. The child automatically returned to the peer group. And the more troubled those peers are, the more likely you have is a criminal gang. Right. Especially under conditions of poverty, when, when kids are looking at very poor prospects in life and all of a sudden the gang says, hey, this is a good source of income. We can generate money just by the drugs or the violence or whatever. That's, that's almost an irresistible pull for young, troubled young kids. So the kids don't create the gang, society does. Wow, and, and the violence, they've learned the violence from not only their neighborhoods, but also from their own families. Yeah, I know. Um, it's somebody made the point, like especially in black families, it's almost like slavery that's been passed on through the generations. So slaves used to be whipped. And there's so much, there has been, I don't know if there still is, but historically, as I read it, there's been so much whipping of, of, of black kids by their parents who are desperate to keep them in line. Because if they're not in line, they're going to get into trouble. But they're, they're using method, but they're using methods that will hurt the child. And it's the same in Canada. We had the terrible residential schools where indig indigenous kids were taken from their families and put into these church-run institutions. We just had the delegation of Canadian indigenous leaders flying to the Vatican, but the Pope issued this really meager, paltry apology mm -hmm. for a hundred year abuse of native kids in these residential schools, church-run residential schools, where kids were beaten, sexually abused. Then they grow up and they do it to their kids. And so this is one generation traumatizing the next. 
without meaning to, but that's just how they were brought up themselves. So we see that a lot. The more racism there is, the more state violence or socially sanctioned oppression there is, the more likely that's passed on within families to the next generation. It was passed on in my family. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I don't know why my father was an alcoholic, but he must have been in a lot of pain. Well, what do you say about somebody who's drunk too much? You say, oh, he's feeling no pain, right? Yeah. So your dad was a traumatized person who was trying to soothe his pain. And then that made him drink and that probably made him behave in ways that were really hurtful to his family. Mm -hmm. which he never intended to do by the way it's not that I ever woke up one morning and says i'm going to hurt my family today but he couldn't help it not that you as a child would know that right what does the child what is the message the child get when there's so much violence in the home what does the child perceive um because I didn't, I didn't understand what was going on. I didn't know why they were so mad at each other. Well, the child gets, I think, at least three messages. One is that the world is a dangerous place, and I have to be vigilant. I have to be defensive. I have to be, I have to hide myself, or I have to be aggressive. But I have to be, no matter what, I have to defend myself because the world is unsafe. And uh, that's the first thing. The message the child gets. The second message the child gets is that she's worthless. Because surely if I was worth something, they wouldn't behave this way. That they behave this way, it's got to be because I'm worthless. So the child develops a sense of shame about who they are. The third message the child gets is that um, relationships are not to be trusted and that they're confusing. And... Uh, then that person will enter into confusing and untrustworthy relationships later on because that's all he knows or that's all she knows. So th these are at least three of the messages that uh, children receive when they grow up in an atmosphere of violence. Now, for the fourth, by the way, the fourth lesson they get is that I have to work awfully hard to make things better. So my job is to always make it okay for everybody else. That's another message some children receive. More girls than boys. Girls tend to get that message more than, males more get the message that I need to be aggressive to survive. <laughs> I, can, I mustn't be vulnerable. Girls often get the message that I gotta work hard and make nice for everybody so that I won't be hurt. All four of those messages are true. Are I have, I've responded, I have created those messages in, in my own head, in my own life. Yeah, well, those are inevitable. And the way to look at them is in the beginning, they, they serve to protect you. Yeah, it makes me so sad to think of what happened to me, but what's also happening to children right now in this moment around the world. Yeah. It's happening to a lot of children around the world right now. It's true. Which is why the work that you do and the work that I do is so important. And the good news is, it didn't destroy you, did it? No. No. And so that um, there's something in us. Just as there's something in Jesse. I mean, Jesse, who asked that question, when you think about it, why is he asking it? There's something in him is curious about life and wants to understand. Well, that's amazing. With, 10, with, the, with the A score of 10 and 24 years in jail for something he did as an immature 19-year-old when he had the maturity of a three-year-old, probably, emotionally speaking, and he's still in jail for it. And despite that, he's wanted to find out and wanted to grow and wanted to learn. I mean, that's amazing. He's such an amazing man. He's, oh. He spends his whole day making beading necklaces uh, to give to charity all day long. 
Wow. And he just raised $1,500 for a correctional officer who died. And um, oh. yeah. For his, family, for his family? Uh, yeah, for his family, I think for funeral expenses. Amazing. I know. It's yeah. just the amount of love and compassion and um, talent that's in a prison is, is just untapped. And that's one of my goals is to show the world what's in there. Well, I, th I think that <clears throat> some of the most sensitive people are in jail for the reasons that I mentioned. And uh, the more hurt you are, the more likely you are to go in the wrong direction. But the more sensitive you are, the more hurt you're going to be. But sensitivity also means that you're going to be capable of that much more insight, that much more creative, that much more intuitive. So there's some incredible people in jail um, who had they had a different childhood, just would have been leaders and creators and artists and writers and, and musicians and just spiritual guides. I mean, I'm telling you, our jails are populated with some of the most incredible potential in our society. But given racial or economic or, or multi-generational traumatic circumstances, that sensitivity got trampled on. And as a result, people became aggressive and, 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 and protective and mistrustful and uh, doing things that, you know, were, were harmful to themselves and to others. And now we're punishing them. But why are we punishing them? We're punishing them for the fact that they were hurt and that nobody understood their pain. That's what we're punishing them for. Yeah, that's it. But I, I think we're also afraid because if we understood their pain, we would have to look at ours. Well, yeah. If we understood their pain, we'd have to look at all the many ways in which society hurts people, in which we let children down, in which we stress human beings, um, in which we exploit and manipulate them, and how we're hurting ourselves, and how much hurt there is in ourselves. Well, it's better to just condemn and judge other people and see them as these terrible others than to look at all the pain that they carry, that we also carry, but we're just afraid to look at. Yeah, which, you know, I mean, a lot of your work is about addiction. And uh, I would say, instead of looking at any of it, addiction is, is, a, is a great solution. Addiction shows up as a solution. When I ask people, <clears throat> I don't care what they're addicted to, whether it's cocaine or crystal meth or fentanyl or heroin or nicotine or alcohol or pornography or gambling or sex or shopping or eating or whatever it is. If I ask them the question, not what's wrong with your addiction, but what's right about it, what does it give you? They'll say it gives me, it numbs me. But when do people need to be numbed? when they're in pain, like at a dentist's office. They'll say, it makes me feel connected. Well, isn't that wonderful? We all want to feel connected. It gives me inner peace. It relieves my stress. It soothes my pain. It makes me feel powerful. Well, those are, those are states that we all want and actually need. So, this, so to which my response is, well, that shows you that the addiction is not your primary problem. You don't have a disease. What you have is you have the problem of emotional pain. You have the problem of, of stress that you cannot handle. You have the problem of being alone. You have the power of powerlessness. You have the problem of lack of connection. Those are imprints of trauma. So the addiction is not a disease or some stupid choice you made. The addiction actually comes along to temporarily gives you things that every human being needs. No, it goes without saying that addictions will also create many more problems and make you suffer. That's the nature, as, as Eckhart Tolle said, uh, addictions begin in pain and end in pain. That's true. But we have to understand the pain that addictions originate in. And rather than dismissing, judging, or punishing people, we need to say, well, okay, how can we help you get back that love, that connection, that sense of power, that sense of belonging, the inner peace that you lost a long time ago? That's the real answer to addiction, 
not punishment. You talk about the essential self, the loss of the essential self, which is basically everything you described, what people were fe- wanted to feel when they're, when they're using their addiction, when they're using their drug. Yeah. So the essence of trauma um, is a disconnection from your true self. Why did you disconnect? Because when you connected as a small child, it was too painful. Because the world couldn't recognize it, honor it, defend it, protect it, nurture it. So you disconnected. That was your defense mechanism. But what you disconnected from, when you disconnect from the pain, which is a young child, you have to, because you can't endure it. You also disconnect from love. You also disconnect from joy. You disconnect from clarity. You disconnect from wisdom. You disconnect from your gut feelings. And um, which is what I call the essential self. Yeah. Um, And what people discover, by the way, when we talk about addiction, what is the process of healing and addiction called? They call it recovery. And if you look at that word recovery, what does it mean to recover something? It means to find it again. And over and over again, when you ask people, well, what did you find when you recovered from addiction? They say, I found myself. Which also means that the true self was never destroyed or damaged or broken. It just lost contact with it. And recovery means precisely that you recover contact with who you are in the first place. Have you recovered contact with your, your essential self? I don't want to give you an absolute answer to that because at any moment in a given day, you may not see me that way at all. But you know what? Overall, I'm so much closer to it, so much more aware of it, so much more respectful of it, so much more um, vigilant over it, um, and so much more it than I ever used to be. It's a lifelong process. I'd never want to say that it's complete for me. Um, I will tell you, if it ever is complete, I'll... I'll let you know right away, but I'm certainly not there yet, but, but I'm aware of it and I'm much closer than I used to be. Thank God, you know, and, and, and that process is available to, to everyone actually. Yeah. I mean, since I started this three years ago, started diving into this, it's, it's amazing connecting back with, with who I really am. And yeah. and, 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 and of course who you really are is, I mean, you look at the work that you do. You're generous and you're loving and you're giving and you're accepting and you're compassionate. Well, that's your true self showing up. Don't you just love it? I, you know, it's strange. I'm more my true self when I go into a prison than when I'm with my family. And well, that's only because you haven't quite figured out how to be yourself around people that trigger you. True. And by the way, I'm the same way. If you know, there's a spiritual teacher, Ram Das, who died a couple of years ago, and he said, if you want to know how spiritually advanced you are, go spend a week with your family. (laughs) (laughs) It's so true. And also, I think you're right, they trigger me, but I also, my sense of safety is not as as developed with my my close family. That's where you were hurt in the first place. So that you go in there with more memories of danger. Um, but who's the one that's aware that I'm not being myself? My essential self. Yeah, so it shows up, doesn't it? Oh yeah, and I'm, I'm, working, yeah. I'm working on it every day. Yeah, yeah. It's- it's the work. It's the work to to find out the corners of darkness and um, pain that haven't been that haven't been brought to light. Well, Saint Paul said that um, when you turn the light into darkness, then the darkness becomes light. Well, it's getting light in here. It's getting <laughs> much lighter. That's so great. I have another uh, another question from Scotty. Sure. 
Scotty was um, born in a prison and he spent most of his time uh, in juvenile detention centers and then in prison. He says he has a few questions and I think they're all really extraordinary. Great. What is the most important thing a man can do to achieve internal freedom from the chains of the past trauma while dealing with the pain and suffering of being changed, chained externally in the present prison? Yeah. So it'd be arrogant of me to believe that I can give you a really satisfactory answer because I haven't faced that. I know how difficult I find it even in ordinary life without having to be in without being incarcerated chained and demeaned and subjected to arbitrary rules and so on so i, I don't want to be facile and giving you an answer here but i think it needs to begin with two things one is those things about yourself from your past you have to really forgive them you have to have real compassion for the person that was driven to do whatever you did so you have to liberate yourself from the chain of shame, in other words. So you can recognize that I've done things and I've behaved in ways that were hurtful and even damaging to others. But um, in fact, let me read you something from, from my new book, okay? Yeah. And this is, um, because this is from a prison. And this is, somebody said to me in San Quentin, and this is from the second chapter of the um, um, the second to last chapter, and uh, I just read you this um, paragraph. Here it is. Okay. Thanks to my work in addiction, I've been invited to speak to incarcerated populations. In other words, to the most traumatized and marginalized in our culture. I'll never forget what Rick, a lifer in California, San Quentin, one of the historically most notorious of US prisons said to me, told me. He had been through a volunteer-led transformational program that took him for a deep dive into the self, beginning with the childhood that features every, featured every category of adverse childhood experience. An alienated and violent adolescence, a drug-addled young adulthood, that culminated in the killing. He was now 30 years older, a smallish, thin, black man with great stubble and thinning hair. He was hoping to apply for parole. We were sitting in a meeting room along with a, about a dozen of his confreres of various ages. This group, he said, made me think about my actions and helped me stop running to stand up and face those inner demons I had always run away from. I have learned to love myself and to know that there are people out there who care. So that's the beginning. I wondered what he would want the parole board to know about him. Well, Rick pondered, at that time in my life, I was separated from me. I didn't even know who I was. I didn't respect myself, quite so I couldn't respect no one else. I didn't love myself, so I didn't have no love for anybody else. But after doing this time, really stopping and looking at my life as a genuine thing, and with the love for myself and understanding that for me, love is everything. Love is opening me up to everything outside of me. What I'm doing for myself, learning about me, I'm learning about everyone else too. I'm not different from everybody else. If I touch spirit, I'm not separated. If you do let me out of here, this is the kind of work I want to do when I get out. I'm ready. I want to go home. But even if they don't let me go home, I already know who I am and what I want to do. So I couldn't give you a better answer than what this man said, which is that he found love, he found love for himself. He found love for others and he's already free. Exactly. Now, he'd, like to, he'd like to be out of jail, but he's a lot freer in a certain sense than a lot of people out there who are walking around in the streets of our cities. Absolutely. So, yeah. So I think it needs to begin with that. I think so. so. I think so. Self-compassion is what it needs to begin with. Doesn't all of it begin with self-compassion? I mean, it's, it's holding up a mirror to yourself, right? It's holding up a clear mirror to yourself. 
um, very often we hold up mirrors to ourselves, but they're very smudgy, full of wrong ideas and perceptions. And, you know, and this is where other people come in. I mean, the reason, um, what was the name of the person who asked this last question? Scotty. Scotty. The reason Scotty was able to ask that question, because you were there in relationship with him, and he had somebody to convey that message to. So you were there as a mirror for him before he was there as a mirror for himself. So we do this, we do this for each other, this mirroring. Yeah, he's, he's extraordinary. He's, um, here's another question he has. Yeah. How does one move on from trauma when he is constantly reminded of his abuse by the presence of reinforcements to his belief system, i.e. trying to heal from my childhood trauma by being raised from eight to 18 in an institutional environment where I was harmed by authority figures to being actively harmed by authority figures now in prison. Yeah. How does one heal? Well, again, um, nothing in my experience has given me the challenge that Scotty is facing. So again, I'd be arrogant to provide some kind of an easy answer here. But what I, if I could speak with Scotty, here's what I would ask him. I say, Scotty, who's asking that question? Hmm. The part of you that's asking that question has already got awareness and wisdom. Hmm. Despite whatever happened to you as a child, and despite the hardships that you're facing now and the injustices that you're facing now, you're still there wanting to know and recognizing the problem. Well, that part of you who's asking that question is also the part that will guide your healing. Not what I tell you, but what your own wisdom is already helping you discover. And what you, what, what's evident from your question is that for all that you suffered and continue to suffer, you don't identify with your suffering. You realize that there's more to you. And so that's what the healing is. It's not, these pains are real, these hurts are real. There's no way to deny or to somehow erase them, but they don't sum you up. They don't define you. There's still that intelligence and that yearning for life that you are, that I survived all that. But that's where the answer is. And, you know, I would say for everyone who's listening to this, it's, it's true for every one of us. Yes. What you're saying is if we're actually curious about how we can begin healing, the, the essential self is already, is already starting to do the work. Exactly right. Because as soon as you ask the question, how do I heal? You've just blasted out of the water that belief that you're not worth anything. Because nobody, you know, you may have grown up with this belief that I'm worthless, but if you fundamentally believed it, you wouldn't even be asking about healing. You wouldn't even think that you're worthy of healing. So the very fact that you're asking, it means that your healthy self is already showing up. Did you hear that, Scotty? <laughs> um, and I guess here's, here's following to this, this answer that you just said, he said, he asks, how does one demonstrate to another human being that he has healed? How does one recognize healing in himself when he has spent a lifetime ignoring himself? Well, again, the second question, Scotty's already answered just mm -hmm. by asking it. Yeah. Uh, no, there's something in us that kind of invalidates our essence or our sense of self sometimes. The mind kind of says, well, how do you really know? Come on, Scotty, you know. Because <laughs> you're, you're, you're in dialogue with Fritzy and me. <laughs> and, and we're honored by the fact that you're in, in dialogue with us. Now, how do you convince others? That doesn't just depend on you. Because it's like, how do you show colors to a blind person? Or how do you describe music to somebody who's deaf? So you may sing beautifully, but if that person is tone deaf, they're not going to hear you, no matter how hard you try. And you may have painted a beautiful picture, but somebody who's blind will not see it. So. 
all you can do is to sing as beautifully as you can, to be who you are, to manifest it in every way. If you're fortunate, it'll be seen. Unfortunately, this system makes a lot of people blind. And it puts those people into positions of authority. So, unfortunately, very often, people in authority, they don't see very well. That's just how the system works. That's what allowed to work. If people in authority really saw well, this system couldn't survive. How can we help so, them? So, so, you know what? Do what you can, but don't take it personally if you're not seen. As long as you satisfy yourself, that you're being true to yourself and that you're healing. With a bit of help and with a bit of good fortune, that'll be noticed. But it can't be guaranteed. Yeah, but I, I think I think we all know we're heal we're healing because at, at least for me, I'm noticing my my startle responses are are diminishing. My mm -hmm. reactions to things are mm -hmm. are less abrupt, mm -hmm. um, and I'm I'm feeling calmer in my body. And I think yeah. those are some yeah. for, those are my signposts. Of course. By the way, let me say one more thing about prisons. This is a well known and research substantiated fact: is that. A lot of the correctional officers are just as traumatized as the people that they're looking after. So very, they don't, it's not even that they deliberately, sometimes they might. First of all, many of them are good people. They, are, they really are trying to help people. Number one, that's just the reality. Number one. Number two, even when they're behaving hurtful, what they're doing is they're acting out their own pain. They may not realize it. So very often it's some very traumatized people who then have to wield authority over other traumatized people. It's that's not a good situation, but that's how it tends to work. Uh, so I'm hoping that our words will penetrate not just to people that are on this side of the bar, but also on the other side of the bar. Yes, and what's what I'm finding interesting is the people living in prison are getting all the courses and all the classes yeah. and all the ways yeah. to regulate their behavior. Yeah. Officers are not getting that, those courses. Yeah. yeah. That's and, one of the, yeah. And they could well use it, you know, like the meditation courses, everybody could use them. And, and no matter what side of the bar, the cage you're standing on, you could use that, you know, and, uh, sometimes like I saw this in, as a physician, I saw this in the medical system all the time, is that somebody who's troubled and traumatized and maybe addicted comes into the emergency ward. Now the nursing staff and the physicians are already suspicious and they're judgmental and they're wary. They're, you know, with their wariness and their own hostility, they make that other person more hostile. Hmm. Then they think it's all about that other person. People in authority don't realize to what extent they affect the nervous system of the people over whom they wield power. And so very often the aggression that you see is the aggression that you've unwittingly created. Not because you wanted to, your intentions might be the best. I know in the emergency ward, the intentions of the people are, let's do our best for the patients, but they don't realize how, how much their own suspicion and hostility and um, they're not aware of how authoritarian they're being. They just think they're being harsh or as necessary. And I'm telling you, you talk to people a different way, a different part of that person will show up. And I've seen cops do this. And when I worked in the downtown east side of Vancouver, the highly addicted population, I often, I often saw the police in action with my clients. Some cops show up all tough and hostile and I'm in charge here. <laughs> they trigger the hostility and fear. Other cops come in with a bit of sense of peace in themselves, a sense of humor, a sense of humanity. That same person becomes a totally different individual in response. So what, that's another thing I'd want people in corrections to know is that to a large degree, they help to create the people that then they have to control. 
they actually also help create the violence that is uh that's what i'm saying um i mean including their own their own deaths um a lot of correctional officers get get targeted because of i guess because of the way they're treating people yeah yeah and then and, and usually the way they're treating people is a, is is an outcome of their own trauma yeah so yes that would be wonderful if those people also had access to the courses and the growth programs and the meditations and the spiritual teachings and the psychological development that the prisoners sometimes have access to i'm working i'm start going to start working with washington state uh Dep department of corrections with their officers well if i can help you in any way let me know really and also i'm being flown to scotland to work with their officers and their incarcerated families fantastic yeah That's yeah fantastic. And and the incarcerated men and women. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's going to spread. And one of the things people in your course, in the Compassionate Inquiry course, has requested, um, we do a thing called the Compassion Trauma Circle, but it's it's on Zoom. Yeah. And so people raise their hands for the amount of ACEs that they have. Yes. And they're requesting that perhaps we bring the Compassion Trauma Circle to your work. And okay. so I'm just throwing it out there. Well, that's great, but don't throw it out to me because I don't do any of the organizing or the, okay. the, the administrative decision making, you know, I, but, but, you know, you know who to contact. Yes. Okay. Well, I, I will do it. I, I didn't know yeah, who to talk to. Yeah. Um, Satyaram. Pardon? Satu Satyaram. Satyaram, you know who she is? Oh, right. Yes. Yes. I've met her. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I, Reach out to her. I will. I definitely will. Yeah. Um, I have one more question by Daniel, because um, sure. I think these are such, these answers are so important because these are what's on their minds. Great. He asks, how does childhood trauma relate to teen violence? Well, um, when a child is uh, traumatized, like, let's, let's imagine a scenario right now, Fritzi, where I'm, verbally violent towards you just across the screen yeah i'm not even physically with you i can't physically hurt you but i could be verbally violent with you what would be your healthy reaction i just want to go away i want to get out of here that's one, that's one healthy reaction what kind of emotions would you be experiencing uh i'm sure i'd be feeling shame and anger maybe anger. sadness yeah. anger for sure yeah now what if you're not in a position to express that anger? Where would that anger go? Inside. Inside. And it becomes like the inside of a volcano. Mm -hmm. The hot lava of rage just builds up and builds up and builds up. The child is in no position to express it because to do so is to invite more danger. So they have to suppress it, repress it, push it under the... Um, the surface of their consciousness. Now, imagine you're in a swimming pool and you have a beach ball, and the big beach ball, and you're trying to push it under the surface of the water. That takes a lot of energy, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. So it also takes a lot, of energy, a lot of energy to suppress that anger at what's happening to you as a small child. But if you expressed it, you'd be hurt even more. Right. So you keep pushing it down, you keep pushing it down. Eventually, it has to blow. It has to, like the volcanic lava, it has to just burst. And now, and now it's going when you're old enough and big enough, and you have some target that you can aim it at, maybe some poor other kid who was equally traumatized as you. And all it is, is the energy of rage that he had to suppress, now breaking out of you like the flow of lava out of a volcano. When you talk about rage, I think of, of the blind rage. Blind rage is... Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about blind rage. That, and blind in the sense that it doesn't recognize who the real target is and what the real source is. It just bursts out of you. 
but there's an unconscious element as well. Like to me, when I go into some rages, sometimes I don't even know who I'm yelling at or why I'm going so nuts. When you say there's an unconscious element, not that there's an unconscious element, the unconscious element dominates. Hmm. So you get triggered and then, but look at this word trigger. What does it actually mean? Like a trigger is a very small part of the weapon, isn't it? Mm -hmm. What is actually there is a big explosive charge and ammunition. Yeah. That's, that's the rage you've been suppressing all your life. And then something triggers, somebody says something, something trivial. And so that's the nature of that blind rage. Is, and, and so that, that's why in healing, we have to actually own how much anger we have and to learn how to work with it. So we don't get triggered, but we know how to... Anger is good, by the way. We need anger. Our, yeah. our brains are partly wired for anger. Why? Because if I was hurting you, you should be angry with me. Mm -hmm. You'll be able to stand up and say, no, stop it. Yes. It's healthy anger. It's a boundary defense. But when we suppress it mm. and it becomes unconscious, then later on we get triggered. And now you have people doing terrible things to each other. Then 10 years later, they wonder, why did I do that? Yeah. A lot of people are in prison because of yeah. why did I do that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why they did it. Yeah. And uh, well, his next question, which is how does childhood trauma relate to violence against an abuser or perceived abu abuser such as a parent? So violence against a parent is what he's asking about. Well, um, if you're small and helpless and, and you're being hurt and you're storing up all this anger, it may be that when you grow up and you no longer have to be afraid of that parent, you no longer have to be afraid of losing their support or their love or their nurturing of you. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing more natural. You know, by the way, I've told my kids that I wasn't afraid that they'd be angry with me. I was afraid they wouldn't be angry enough. Mm -hmm. I wanted my kids to be angry with me because when they were small, I passed on my trauma to them. I didn't mean to, but I did. So I wanted them to know that. I didn't want them to hit me. I didn't want them to rage at me. Although if they did have to, they would have to. But I wanted them to feel the anger that was really in them. That's so beautiful. Yeah. Um, how does parent, how does a parent recover the connection from their children after traumatizing their kids? How do we repair this damage that is happening all over the United States right now? Parents, and I know they feel awful, and I know they did the best they could, and the damage is done, though. There's some damage here or some injury. So my son Daniel helped me write my new book, The Myth of Normal. But the next book, next book we're writing is called Hello Again, A Fresh Start for Adult Children and Their Parents. And that's actually a workshop that we give. And if anybody has access to YouTube, you could Google Daniel and Gabor Mate, um, Hello Again. And in 2016, we gave a public talk about this. Even on stage, we're still fighting with each other. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, that was the beginning of our process of, of, of dealing with it. And... We've come a long way since then, and we're doing a workshop again. And we're going to write when after this book comes out in the fall. We're going to start writing our next book just on that subject. You can't heal the child, the adult child. That's up to the adult to take on their own task of healing. But you can certainly heal yourself and bring that healed self to that re that relationship if your child is willing to join the dance, which many children adult children are because they want to heal their relationship with their parents i know i i know and it's it's that fear you know the fear of of engaging with your child you just don't want to hurt him anymore yeah yeah but well, it depends if you don't hurt them anymore then then, you, then most of the time you won't because you'll be aware of how you hurt them before and by the way, drop all the guilt, too, because you didn't do it deliberately. Right. Thank you. Thank you for that. It's nice to have someone um, help me assuage my guilt, because it, it pops up every once in a while, the things I remember yeah. doing to my son. 
Yeah, I know. Me too. Believe me, I've been through that. But um, you know what? I used to be very worried about my kids. And the more, the older they grow, the more I see they're taking care of themselves. They're dealing with their trauma. They're able to set their boundaries with me if they have to. And uh, also, the more I heal myself, the more I see the possibility of healing in them. So I, therefore, I'm less worried about them. There's that quote, when you heal something in yourself, you heal it for the world. Have you heard yeah. that quote? Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? It does. It does. It, it, because your new perspective gets felt and seen by everybody else as you're going through life. That's right. That's right. Um, I just was wondering, for the people in prison, because I'm going to send this whole episode to mm -hmm. them. Um, can you <coughs> describe the problem with um, being authentic when you're trying to attach to a parent? Mm. Well, so um, let's say you're two years old. Let, never mind abuse even, okay? I mean, that's a whole other game, but let's just take a very mild example. You're two years old and you want a cookie before dinner. And your mommy says, no cookie before dinner. What's the two-year-old going to do? if they want that cookie? Um, probably have a tantrum. Exactly. Because for a two-year-old, when they want something, they think they need it. Mm. Which is, by the way, true for adult addicts as well. They think that what they need is, what they want is what they need, which is not true. But, um, mm. so the two-year-old wants that cookie. Mommy says no. If she's being a good mother, she'll say no. She'll set a boundary. And the kid goes into a tantrum. But what if mommy was told that an angry kid should be made to sit by themselves and give them a time out? Mm. No, the child has his need to connect with mommy because inside he knows he can't survive without it. If she keep, and if they, you know, if mommy keeps saying, "Good little kids don't get angry," now you go sit by yourself. The message the kids get is that angry little kids don't get loved. No, I have this authentic feeling of anger because I didn't get my cookie. <laughs> but I can't express it because if I do, I'll be rejected. So what am I going to choose? The nurturing of my mummy or my authentic feeling? Well, very few children could abide choosing their authentic selves so they suppress their things. So, so you lose connection with yourself to stay connected to your parents. Now, take abusive situation where you're really being hurt, never mind not getting a cookie, but you're really getting hurt. But if you acted out your rage or you tried to run away, you'd be lost. So you suppress all that. When you suppress your genuine feelings, you're losing your connection to yourself. So you're choosing the, the connection with the other person and you're giving up the connection to yourself. And you lose your connection to your intuition as well, right? Your connection to your gut feelings. Yeah, absolutely. I was talking about that before. So, yes. so that's what recovery always means is coming back to ourselves. So, but I, I, I'm seeing this play out throughout my, my life my authenticity, um, trying to attach to boyfriends or yeah. mostly men or, or friends, but I say mostly men, Yeah, you know, doing things that I wouldn't do if I, if I, if I had a foundation of authenticity, if I understood that it was safe to be who I am. Well, that's the point. You, you, you got the message that I wasn't safe to be who you are. And that means you're going to gravitate towards men who are going to reinforce that message for you. Until, until you figure it out. Like even in my marriage, my wife really had to make a decision at certain points. I, I want authenticity more than I want this relationship with you. So you better smarten up. <laughs> so I said, okay, I'll smarten. <laughs> yeah. That, that's how it works. Um, but I think a lot of marriages um, could be saved if we were if we were allowed to be our authentic selves allowed by whom ourselves but i don't know mm -hmm. i mean it's it's a mess isn't it it's just a mess because 
if I'm authentic, I might not want to go out tonight. Yeah. If, I'm, if I'm authentic, I may not want to go to Europe with you. That's exactly what my wife told me, by the way, recently. I had a European trip planned, and um, I'm leaving on May the 8th, and she's not coming with me. Now, she'll join me later, but there's a certain part of it that she didn't want to do. So she said, no, I'm not coming. What do you mean you're not coming? You know, But right. good for her. I, I, I want to be with a person who knows their minds and knows what they want, you know? Yeah, and it's a different negotiation, though. If we're negotiating with our authentic selves, then if we're in, in negotiating with the people that feel like we need to manipulate the situation so we can get attachment. Well, that's the decision you have to make is what's more important to you, the attachment or the, or the authenticity. As a child, you had no choice. Right. But, uh, you know, in my new book, again, there's a chapter on this that it ends with inauthenticity may not have been a choice but authenticity can be. Wow. I can't wait for this book. It's, it just seems um, so necessary right this second. Well, I think it's coming out at the right time. Of course it is. All your books are have come out at the right time. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, so I'm just going to end with this. April is Child Abuse Awareness Month. Yeah. And what is... And we'll just close it up. But what does child abuse do to the brain of the child? What does it do to, to what's it doing to our families? And what is it doing to our society? I know it's a big question. Well, people that want to know what it does, I couldn't think of a better book to recommend than this book by Dr. Bruce Perry and Oprah. Mm-hmm. It's called What Happened to You. And Bruce Perry is a neuroscientist and a child psychologist and a researcher and just a wonderful human being. And he really shows you in pictures what happens to the brain in a childhood trauma in, in a conversation with Oprah, who herself was a traumatized child. And uh, Bruce points out that when trauma happens, the parts of the brain that are rational and um, uh, insightful and compassionate and present they don't develop so well. And what develops are the circuits of rage and, 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 and fear and so on. And even later on in life, when some trigger occurs, then these parts of the front part of the brain, those executive functions that help us be mature adults, they go offline. So if you're watching the brain scan, of one of your prisoner clients or friends as they were committing their violence, if you could do a brain scan at that time, there'd be no adult functioning up there whatsoever. Mm-hmm. It'd be the purely the emotional circuits and the defensive circuits driving the bus. So trauma not only hurts you and disconnects you, it also affects your brain. Good news being, the brain can develop new circuits even later on in life if we only work at it. It's such good news. And I hear adults are even more, have more plasticity, even though it was thought that it was children who had all the plasticity. Even adults have tremendous amount of plasticity and ability to bounce back to, to well, What? Neuroplasticity, meaning the capacity of the brain to develop new circuits in response to new experiences. And you know what my line about that is, you know, I, I always say, thank God for neuroplasticity, because I'm 78 now, and I wouldn't want to be as young and stupid as I was when I was 77, you know? <laughs> Honest uh, to God, I wouldn't. No, it's, it's one of the gifts of life is watching, watching our own evolution, right? How, yeah. how great we are, how great we're becoming. I mean... You know, candy, for seeing, sure. seeing you today, you look much younger and much brighter than I, when I last saw you. And I don't know what happened, but you do. You just look so full of life and, and joy. I'm glad to hear that. Part of that is that I finished this book, which is a heavy weight on my, yes. on my neck for a long time. Partly I've continued to work on myself and on my relationship. Um, I've opened up to new possibilities. Um, yeah, it's great. I'm, I, I've never been more 
um, grateful uh, for life than I am at this point. See, we don't we don't stop, do we? We keep growing, and I mean, it's just magical. It makes me cry. It's just like the resilience of the human spirit is is limitless. Absolutely. Um, did I ever tell you my epitaph? No. Um, so engraved on my on my funeral stone, it's going to say, "It was a lot more work than I had anticipated." <laughs> <laughs> the work continues, people, for all of us. Wow, oh. Dr. Gabor Mate, thank you so much for your time today, for your wisdom, and um, and your courage, and just showing us the path that we can all, you know, walk beside you on, as Ramda says. We're all just walking each other home. Yeah. Well, if it is always a pleasure to speak with you. I have um, such respect and admiration and appreciation for the work that you've taken on and, and, and uh, the light that you bring into some of the most darkest places in our society. So it, any pleasure in speaking is absolutely mutual. So thank you. Thank you, Dr. Mate. Okay, take care. Bye. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Gabor Mate. Dr. Mate, your wisdom and your vulnerability, your candor, and your ability to really help us understand what's going on in the troubled and traumatized mind of children and adults um, helps us you know, journey into the healing process. And I just wanna thank you for joining me and for helping helping the guys in prison understand what's, what they're going through with their trauma. I think it's been really educational, not only for me, but I think for the men in prison and the women in prison, I think this will be really helpful to their healing and to their self-compassion. If you enjoyed this podcast and YouTube presentation, please subscribe, share, uh, and like this, and go to our website at CompassionPrisonProject.org. Take the ice quiz and if you feel like donating or volunteering, we'd love to have you. Thanks again for watching and I'll see you next time.